Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey, it's Sarah Larvey. You're listening to Where Should I Invest? And today's guest is Sean Quigg from Prosperous Law. If you had questions and ideas and things that you needed from a real estate legal standpoint, this is going to be the episode for you. We talk about discovering effective strategies for investing, wholesale deals, refinancing JVs, all that good stuff, um, overcoming challenges in the current economic climate, and financing difficulties, finding alternative sources of capital. He's got a great new option as well for deposit capital. If you are looking for deposit capital, we talk about gaining insights into pre-construction, how to avoid these obstacles in the future and the legalities of that, and a lot more. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Sean Quigg is, provides a ton of value. He's got this amazing newsletter that he sends out information, really valuable information on, I believe it's a daily basis. So you'll definitely want to sign up for his newsletter. Uh, but before we bring in Sean to talk about real estate investing from a legal standpoint and a real estate investing lawyer, we are going to hear from Dahlia Barsoom at Streetwise Mortgages. Dahlia, over to you. Hi. If you currently have a mortgage with an advanceable line of credit component with any of the big banks, such as the Step Mortgage with Scotiabank, the Whole Power Plan with CIBC, the RBC Home Line Plan, BMO's Home Owner Ready Line, or the National Bank All in One, then this message is for you. By now, you would have received a letter from your bank outlining upcoming changes to the advanceable mortgage products that will take effect on November the 1st. But before I get into the details of the letter and how this change impacts you, I'd like to go through a quick refresher of what an advanceable mortgage is. Essentially, an advanceable mortgage combines a mortgage with a line of credit, which acts like a home equity line of credit, referred to as a HELOC. And with the banks, a HELOC or a line of credit cannot exceed 65% of the value, but between the mortgage and the line of credit, together they can get up to 80% of the home value at the time the loan was approved. This 80% is referred to as the global limit. And as you make payments towards your mortgage, the credit limit on the line would increase in an amount equal to the principal that you're paying down on the mortgage. When you make a mortgage payment, essentially, you uh, basically have two components. It's split into two components. There is principal pay down and there is an interest component. So let's take an example. Let's say that your mortgage payment is $1,000 and out of that $1,000, 700 goes towards paying down your principal and 300 goes towards paying down the interest. Now, the $700 is what I'm referring to here. That is the amount of principal pay down that would increase the limit on the line of credit by an equivalent amount if you have an advisable mortgage product. So you're essentially reaccessing what you've paid down on the mortgage through the line of credit. And this is a great feature that many homeowners and investors alike um, enjoy. 
Now, 15 months ago, OSFI, the financial services regulator, introduced a new role uh, to basically limit how consumers or borrowers with advanceable mortgages can reborrow any paid down principal. And basically what they want is they want, they don't want um, anybody to reborrow money above 65% of the value of the property at the time the loan was approved. This change is going to take effect on November the 1st for the big six banks and uh, January the 1st for most other federally regulated lenders. OSFI expects that any and all lending above 65% of the loan-to-value, which cannot exceed 80%, will be both amortizing and non-advanceable. That's what the regulator says. Also, the principal payments applied to the portion above the 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall authorized limit or the global limit limit until that global limit reduces to 65%. Okay, I had to read this 20 times before I understood what this really means. It was easier for me to actually understand Spanish than to understand what this is all about. So let me walk you through what it means through an example. Recently, I received my Scotia step uh, letter informing me of the change. I'm not going to read it all, but will highlight the key paragraph that says the following. Beginning November 2023, your step global limit will gradually reduce to 65% over the next 25 years. This will take effect through monthly reductions of $157 to your step global limit. Now, let's get into the translation of what that really means. Consider a case where a borrower has a million dollars house in a combined global limit uh, of mortgages and line of credits as follows. Mortgage component number one is at $150,000. Mortgage component number two is at $250,000. And uh, the client has a $400,000 revolving line of credit. So altogether, we're at 80%. The rule essentially says the following, and here's the key concept. The key concept is that the principal payments applied to any portion above 65% should be matched by a reduction in the overall global limit until this overall limit shrinks to 65%. In this example, mortgage number two of $250,000 along with the line of credit of $400,000 make up 65% of the value of the house, which is a million dollars. So any dollars you pay down on mortgage component number one, which is the portion representing more than the 65%, under the old rules, it used to advance over to the line, but under the new rules will no longer advance over to the line and instead that will gradually shrink your borrowing ability from recycling within that 80% box to eventually, you know, getting to a 65% over time. So that's the idea here. They're trying to limit 
how much money you can recycle within that 80%. So that gradually over time, that amount shrinks to 65% is what this really says. In the Scotia example that I shared with you earlier, the $157 that I read in the letter is basically that gradual monthly reduction in the global limit. It is not something that I'm going to pay out uh, for, uh, you know, myself. Instead, as I pay down the mortgage, instead of being able to re-access that 157 on the line of credit, it will now go towards shrinking the overall global limit from 80% to 65%. So here's the thing. This amount will differ from one client to another. It will differ from one bank to another. But ultimately, the end game is the same for everybody who has this product. Borrowers will end up with readvisable mortgages that have a global limit that cannot exceed 65% over time. And if they're starting at 80%, over time, that number will go down to 65%. And the difference is that some lenders will get you there uh, more, you know, uh, like faster than some other lenders. So if you're readvanceable mortgage, if you got an advanceable mortgage before September 15th, 2012, that's when this B20 regulation took effect that product will be grandfathered. You don't have to write. So none of what I'm talking about here applies to you. But everyone uh, who set up their product past that deadline will be impacted. So if you decide to refinance today and you qualify for an 80% with a mortgage and a HELOC, yes, you're going to start at 80%, but over time, again, this will bring you to the 65%. So this rule applies for new uh, advanceable mortgages that are being set up as we speak. If you have received this letter from your bank and you would like to explore new options to continue to access capital, reach out to my team at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Awesome, Dahlia, thank you. Great insights. And uh, now let's bring in Sean Quigg. And don't forget, if you are thinking of coming out to our live events, check out midtermrentalproperties.com. Go to the events section and you will see all of our upcoming events. And we also have speed networking. And every other month, we also do content. October is multifamily. November is going to be our speed networking, which is super fun. You're going to be able to meet entrepreneurs, business owners, and all that good stuff. And in December, we're going to talk about businesses, entrepreneurship, and how to grow and manage a successful business alongside your real estate and alongside maybe your J-O-B to bring in some additional income. So check that out at midtermrentalproperties.com and go to the events section. On that note, let's bring in Sean Quigg. Sean Quigg, welcome to the show. How are you? Sarah, I'm awesome. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to have you. We've we worked together in the past. You were working on some JV agreements for me to utilize and and prior. And you've got a lot of new, fun, exciting things recently, which we'll I'm sure we'll dive into quite a bit. But let's start with like a quick 30,000 foot view, you know, who you are. I know you're also an investor, you're a lawyer. Maybe give us some some tidbit on that. Okay, sure. Well, um, I've been a real estate investor since 
I went to law school all the way back in 2015, started investing completely by accident. I bought a house. I was leaving a job. I had a job with the federal government and I was basically, you know, a salary employee. And then I went to nothing. So what I thought I would do is buy a house and rent out some of the rooms to other law students. And so I didn't realize house hacking was a strategy that, you know, you could do. And all of a sudden, within a couple of months, I was cash flowing. I thought, hey, this is pretty good. You know, I can afford beer, which is, you know, a must have for law school. And I was living for free. And I didn't even realize the equity I was building or the mortgage pay down that was happening. You know, I just thought this was a way to make sure that I could have that beer to get me through law school. And so, you know, it wasn't long before I was cash flowing. And all of a sudden, I started thinking, hey, this is probably a good idea to keep going on. So what did I do? I bought another student rental. This time, I learned my lesson. I bought way close to the school, uh, way bigger house, used my you know, don't tell anyone, my professional student line of credit to put the down payment down. And so I bought that second house completely the 100% debt. And and I just sold it. I've owned it since then. Cash flowed it. Had to, you know, change strategies in the pandemic to an Airbnb. And, you know, it treated me very well. And so that really what is what got me going on the real estate investing journey. Mm-hmm. And that sort of snowballs from there into flips and multifamilies and then into sort of pairing my profession as a lawyer with my interests in real estate investing. Very cool. You know, I was just actually reading today that there's about over 800,000 international students coming. It's crazy. And, and just to go back to, you know, your the student rental market, I think before the pandemic was in some markets, not every market, but in some market it was getting quite saturated. And throughout the pandemic, like you said, you had to pivot to different strategies. But I think, you know, a lot of students left, obviously, and now they're back and they don't have a lot of places because everybody pivoted, whether it goes to long-term regular tenants, they sold or or they're doing something different. And that happened a lot. And now I think the student rental is going to be prime for, you know, that next chapter of of making some money. But it is interesting that you also pivoted to to some short-term, uh, mid-term stuff because you're also our, our go-to lawyer for all our mid-term rental business and, and properties and that you help our, our students and our investors with that as well, which is pretty cool. So so then you amalgamated real estate investing and your law firm, you know, so let, maybe just talk about your law firm, you know, what it is, what you guys do specifically, how it all ties in together. Sure. Well, the law firm is called Prosper Us. And I chose that name for a couple of reasons. Number one, I wanted to note that, you know, well, first of all, we're a law firm only for real estate investors, which is really where it starts. We don't do anything else. If a client comes in who's not a real estate investor, we, you know, we introduce them to some of our industry colleagues and that's so that we can focus and produce content and material and education and value for people that are real estate investors or in related industries, mortgage brokers, appraisers, that sort of thing. And so Prosperous's name really came from this idea that really, you know, as a real estate investor, you know, your goal, my goal, everyone's goal really is to build prosperity and generational wealth. So I wanted to work within that framework. And then, you know, we sort of put the accent on us to denote that teamwork mentality, right? We're not in this for us. You know, we have, our, our firm has a just cause, you know, this ideal that we are pursuing every day. And it's, it's along the lines of co- constructing a prosperous world or helping to do so where people can provide for the families and be free to do what they want to do. 
And, and so, you know, that takes a team approach as you and I both know. And, and so that's really what caused the creation of Prosperous Law. And, uh, you know, in terms of what we do, we, we help on all sorts of transactions, you know, everything down, you know, starting at a wholesale deal to, you know, CMHC refinancing on a massive building, which uh, we just helped on uh, a couple of weeks ago, private lending, joint venture structuring and contracts, corporate structuring. We're helping with cross-border investing. We're helping with midterm and short-term rental work. And to be at the firm, you have to either be a real estate investor, sorry, to work at the firm, you have to be a real estate investor, or you have to be educated in real estate investing strategies so that we can speak the same language. That's what I found in my time working with investors is the, the value is not in so much in the law because there's a lot of real estate lawyers out there and a lot of them do a great job. Uh, it's in having those good, sound business conversations and being able to add that insight. So that's, that's where we you know, were born from and that's what we're here to do. And uh, so far it's been awesome. Yeah, no, that's really important because, you know, just like realtors, just like mortgage brokers and, and probably a lot of people in the industry, there are some that cater to the regular homeowner, which is totally fine. But as soon as you get into investing and as soon as you get into more complex things, you really do have to have that expert on your team that is well-versed in it. Because, you know, for example, like a lawyer may help you for your regular transaction, but all of a sudden you want to, you know, lend or borrow private money or you want to create some joint venture agreements, or you've got, you know, to, to figure out this whole CMHC a multifamily piece, and that's, you know, different, and you're probably going to close with a corporation. So there's so many moving parts that, you know, it is important that you find, whether it's a lawyer, mortgage broker, whoever it is, somebody that specializes in that, so that you don't have to replace your team down the road, right? Because, you know, ultimately, if I look back, when I first started, you know, in my first investment property, like, I didn't even know what I didn't know. So, you know, our lawyer is, you know, amazing. He was great, you know, but again, you know, you've got to, you've got to evolve because once you start doing some more complex things, it doesn't quite fit in there. Same thing with our mortgage broker. Well, actually, we were, originally we were going to the bank and like, you know, that bank was not like super like investor friendly, you know, realtors, same thing. Like you, we just speak such a different language that, you know, whether you have experience or you're starting out, it's just important to have those experts on your team that can really you know, have your best interest for scaling, for growth, risk mitigation, because that's also a piece of it as well. So, you know, it's, it's great. So you do have a special title, I, I hear. Yes, Chief Value Officer. So tell us so, about that. <laughs> okay, so, you know, what I, it, first of all, I don't call myself a lawyer anymore. And that's generally because I've stepped away from practicing for the most part. I've actually, I've hired a lawyer to work at the firm who's much better at this than I am. And, and that was really for two reasons. Number one, you know, traditionally lawyers would work all day, bill all day, right? And then try and, you know, create value at nighttime and really causes burnout. And as a result, that ability to provide really great service and create deep, meaningful connections suffers. And so uh, my idea was to separate the role of value creation from from closing deals. And so that's, that's why I've largely stepped away from practicing. I advise, I talk strategy. And then once we're set to go, we bring in the rest of the team and they sort of get you to the finish line and over it. But the title chief value officer is largely born out of the fact that's what I want to do. That's what the firm is for. It is to create values either for clients or for my staff. 
And, and so what that looks like is, you know, I'm writing a daily email where I'm providing legal tips or, you know, reviews of transactions or some sort of FAQ or entrepreneurial mindset. You know, we're creating social media content to really teach and educate. I'm doing podcasts. I'm sort of doing other educational outreach and really trying to help people understand how to grow and scale responsibly. And so that's really what it comes down to. How can I make the lives of others uh, more informed, easier? How can I make the process of working with a law firm easier, with less friction, with, you know, make it easier and sort of take the focus away from some of the non-value components, take them on ourselves and, and really deliver an, an awesome product in the end. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, what it came down from. Yeah, no, that is awesome. So, I mean, obviously, I know you guys are, are growing quickly. What are some of the challenges that you're seeing investors uh, come to you with? I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're in 2023. Right now, the economy is quite unstable. This government's questionable. We've got, you know, high interest rates. We've got people that, I mean, this, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're practicing in all of Ontario. We've got you know, landlord-tenant laws that are quite difficult to maneuver against. I think a lot of maybe investors that are are not quite sure what to do next, what their next, be- you know, next best move is. What are the challenges that you're seeing on your end? Well, largely it has to do with economics. And, you know, we're seeing people playing a lot of defense right now, selling for less than they want to, trying to refinance out money where loans have been called, you know, private lenders are are starting to tighten up as well. And says, so that, you know, that comes across in, in two ways, largely. Number one, they're not renewing, right? So they want to get paid back and they might be taking a step back. Or uh, number two, they're less inclined to lend. And so I'm seeing a lot of clients sell when they ordinarily wouldn't. I'm seeing those sales result in the client having to put money in order to be able to close which, you know, never happened prior to, you know, 12, 18 months ago, never, ever happened unless you were really screwed up. But now, you know, you paid for your rentals, you've done all that, and then you still got to put 20 or 30,000 in just to be able to close. Like that's, that's painful. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of refinancing for one private to another, uh, which is also traditionally not something we would see, you know, that's not really how the bird model is supposed to work, but it, it, you know, sometimes renovations are taking longer. People are struggling to find crews that, you know, construction crews that stay together. Uh, and so, you know, a six month renovation is now taking eight, 10, 12 months. And so I'm seeing refinances into private money and I'm seeing private lenders decline. I'm seeing people having a harder time borrowing. And so, you know, that really means we've, as a team, got to step up and start finding other sources of capital, you know, we're connecting with lenders and mortgage brokers almost daily to try and really create that pool so that if we have clients coming to us, we can say, hey, here's five people to go talk to or, you know, put a deal out to to our list and see who might be interested. Yeah, no, that's great that you have, you know, different arms of the business to be able to, you know, bring some solutions and bring some options. What about like, I'm just curious, like what you're seeing on your end from a legal standpoint with a lot of the, I mean, flips is one thing and we talked about burrs and obviously a lot of people are 
you know, having to refinance with a private lender for the time being as rates are, are quite high, they may not qualify. But, you know, pre, like pre-construction was always a bit of a, you know, red flag to me because it's more speculative and, you know, when the market's great, sure, whatever. But like a lot of people bought because they wanted to sign these contracts or a lot of people bought that were stress tests at one level and didn't go through RBC to get locked in. And now they're trying to qualify. So I'm just curious from a, you know, what, what you're seeing on your desk from a pre-construction standpoint, what does that look like? Well, there's two parts to this answer. Number one is most of my clients don't touch pre-con. That's, which, that's, I will say that's good. That's a good thing. I'm glad to hear that. Because yeah. <laughs> you'll so, probably talk them out of it. Yeah. You know, we've, we haven't been open for too long, but we have been open for a while. I have not seen one single pre-con come in. And I think that is largely because most investors in the know don't touch it for exactly the reason you said, which is it's speculative. It's not cash flow, right? It's not nothing's guaranteed ever in investing, but it's not predictable. You're really gambling. And, and so I don't really see it all that much, but I can tell you personally that, you know, as I was learning, I invested in a pre-con and that his, that final closing, you know, we hit occupancy in May and the carrying costs of that condo are gigantic, like 80% more than they were expected to be when I first bought it, when I was actually going to move into it, unless the spread was so large and then we just assign it and final closing is coming up, thank goodness, so that we can get on MLS and get it sold and move on. But yeah, the pre-con world, it's tough. It, it, there's more, you know, on the legal side, contracts are getting more difficult. You know, I have seen pre, uh, plenty of pre-con in my time as a lawyer. And contracts are getting harder to negotiate with builders on. Builders, like they have so much bargaining power. They don't really care. They'll just tell you what they want. Like on my deal in particular, the, if you send a wire, which is traditional, right? To close or you wire the money to the builder's lawyer. If you send a wire, there's an admin fee of $500 instead of a, cert a certified check by courier. And this is just like, this is the builder knowing that no one wants to do certified checks. And so they're just adding, I know $500 is not that much, but you know, that's what it's coming to. And you've probably read the articles, builders just walking away because, you know, little old you and me buying one unit in a condo, we have no bargaining power. We're probably not going to sue the builder. And even if we did, you know, the tear on legislation sort of helps the builder out. So yeah, it's a tough, tough mm -hmm. investment. That's way more of a retail type invest investment. I think, I think so. I think it's when people are like looking at the deposit structure and they're like, oh, I don't have to pay much for like X amount of years. And that, that time comes at some point and, you know, reality will hit at some point. So, okay. So you've got that piece. Can we talk about, I, I think you have another really cool, interesting business as well. I don't know if we're like, are we able to talk about it? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Experience Inspire Beach Resort. It is the resort that we have been building and it is ready. So if you are looking to host events, team building opportunities, retreats of your own, and just even potentially hang out with your friends or family or colleagues, you can rent out a cabin, you can rent out the entire resort. Inspire Beach Resort, it is an adults only, it is Canada's only themed resort 
specifically for adults and the themes are really nice they're really upscale like you have like the beach theme you've got a rustic lodge theme and a vintage hollywood and we are adding more every year but there is uh, an awesome space that is on the water to host your retreats your events your business meetings planning meetings all of that good stuff so check that out inspirebeachresorts.com now back to the show yeah yeah it's okay going and you're referring to upfront capital so upfront capital. let's talk about that yeah it is a deposit lender so what we do is we lend the deposit on a conditional agreement of purchase and sale during the conditional period and what this does is it frees up investor capital to actually perform due diligence so largely we would see this product used for development deals because the cost of due diligence on a development deal is pretty high, right? Anyone who's listening, who's done a development project knows you've got surveys, you've got geo, potentially geotechnical, environmental, you've got architects, you've got consultants. It, it can get pretty hefty. And that conditional period, no one wants to put money into trust. Right. No investor wants to because there's a zero percent return on investment, which, you know, in today's in any inflationary market, but especially today is a loss. Um, and so we do it. So we lend it. There's no mortgage. We can close pretty quickly. We we close the deal on Friday that t- took three days to, to, you know, bring in due diligence on and then fund. And that could have been pared down by probably a day and a half. You know, if if the borrower had come to us sort of before signing their agreement at personal sale, we work with borrowers to help them draft the agreement so that it meets their requirements. And and then it's pretty quick from there. Okay. So just to wrap my brain around the concept. So I mean, and I'm assuming these are for like maybe or maybe they are for small residential. These are like usually like your commercial types of properties, your development deals where you're gonna have, you know, maybe a deposit of a hundred thousand dollars or more. Is that roughly yeah. what you're looking at? Okay. So then yeah. you've got those. So you fund the deposit. And then on closing, is that when do you get paid back? When you go to firm up. So, you know, during that due diligence phase, whether it's 30, 60, 90, 120 days, however long it is, you as the borrower slash investor are doing two things. Number one, you are doing your due diligence. Is this a deal or not? Do we want to take this on? And it doesn't matter if it's a development deal or commercial multifamily or an industrial warehouse. Right? You do that due diligence. The second thing you're doing is you're raising your investor capital. Once you're ready to go firm, you should have raised enough investor capital to be able to pay back the loan. So what, what do you do? You just, you pay it back, you firm up the terms and off you go and you get ready to close. Okay. And so a lot of these, you know, have, I would say like a, a minimum of 60 days for due diligence before you firm up and then maybe another, you know, 30 days after that to close. Sometimes it's longer, right? So. Do you have a time limit on on the loan? It's a minimum of 30 days. So we can't lend for less than 30 days. So if you've got a due diligence period of less than that, we're probably not the right thing for you or right product. So, but we, you know, our maximum right now is 12 months and that's until we really get running. And then there really isn't a maximum. Seeing a due diligence period, I've only seen a due diligence period of 12 months once ever in all my time in this industry. Most, you know, as you said, most due diligence periods are 60 to 90 days. 
Okay. Okay. All right. That's awesome. And are you able to share like the terms on here or, or do they like, are they flexible? Do they change or are they kind of just set? They, so as of now they're set as of the day of recording, we have, you know, our lender fee starts at 2.74% and interest is calculated monthly. So it starts at like one and a quarter percent per month, all the way up to one and three quarter percent per month. So not too bad, you know, like you had a, we had a loan on Friday to close. It was $150,000 deposit. The investor only had to put up something like $6,500 instead of 150. So if you're doing deals, especially if you know you're getting into a good deal right away, you know, that $6,500 is nothing. Like this guy's buying a hundred plus units. So that's almost a rounding error once that building is optimized. So it's good. It's there's it's the solution you didn't even know existed. Yeah, I don't think I mean, not that I know of, but I don't think anyone else is offering that in the market. Like there's prom notes, there's but like not specifically for the deposit. Obviously, there's, you know, private lending out there. But I, again, I, I think you're, you guys are probably the only one that I'm aware of anyways that offer this service. Do you know? Yeah, well, I think there are others that do it, but we're, you know, we're new or we're, we're trying to solve problems and you know our tagline is make better offers do more deals and that really is true like if you're not limited by deposit capital you can make as many offers as you want you can underwrite more deals and as a result you're going to find more and better deals which means you're there's more prosperity and cash flow coming for you and for our industry colleagues realtors mortgage brokers that's more deals for them as well so it really is win for everybody Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, geographically, what do you cover? Is it Ontario only? Is it Canada? Do you expand past that? Maybe just give us that answer for both of the businesses. So your law firm and then also your deposit structure. What? Sorry, what's the business called for the deposit structure? Upfront Capital. All right, perfect. So the Upfront Capital one and then your law firm. Okay. Upfront is all of Canada. Doesn't matter where. It doesn't even matter what the deal is. Like, I want it to be a very good deal so that our borrowers can go and do great things and do more projects and, and make more money. But ultimately, it doesn't matter whether it's a good deal or bad deal because we get paid back before it goes firm. So it doesn't matter what the asset is, whether it's shares, whether it's assets, doesn't matter. So it's all of Canada for upfront. For the law firm, it's all Ontario. So when it comes to real estate transactions, we can help in Ontario. When it comes to contractual and corporate work, there's a little bit more flexibility across the country. So if you're setting up corporate structures and you've got, you know, buildings that you're buying in New Brunswick or BC, you know, we can probably help get your corporate structure set up. And if you're doing contracts, like joint venture contracts, in other provinces, we can also assist with those under some certain circumstances. Do you do any purchases, you know, for people living in Ontario, but like let's just say in the US or different countries, like, are you guys set up for that? And then what, so that's question number one. And then question number two, because I knew, I know I have some students in this uh, category is like, they might have money across, you know, from different countries that they want to bring in and do some JVs or some, you know, corporations bringing in some investors overseas. Do you guys have any experience and you cover that? Yeah. So we work with a provider in the US to create corporate structures in both countries so that you can invest, you know, investor can invest in the U.S. and not get double taxed. 
So investing in the U.S. has a ton of advantages. Number one, you've got a ton of jurisdictions that are much more landlord friendly than, say, Ontario is. And cash flow can be much greater in a number of places in the U.S. Uh, not really your California, you know, but more like Alabama, Tennessee, Florida, that sort of thing. So we work with a provider there. We set up the Canadian side and they set up the U.S. side and then get you going into an asset, whatever, whether you're flipping, whether you're buying multifamily, whatever it might be. So we don't help with the transactions themselves. That's outside of our, our competence, as you know, we'd say in law. But, but we certainly have the connections to the people that are there and doing it. And we get you set up on the Canadian side so that you're not paying more than you need to in terms of tax. Now, your second question was about, remind me again. Overseas money coming into uh, some partnerships to purchase properties. Yeah. So that's a really tricky proposition these days with the ban on foreign buyers. Correct. So, but I think that is only up to three units, unless I'm wrong. But I thought it was only three units, unless. So that's the workaround. So you can't be doing flips unless they're three units or more than three units. And, and we've got to make sure that we have proper contracts in place. As a real estate investor, if you're bringing in foreign money, then you've got to make sure that your foreign money partner has a lawyer here. And that way they're cognizant of the laws here and how that works in terms of how to pair up money and, and expertise in order to invest. And it definitely has to be four units or more. Okay. All right. Okay. So that's good. So it sounds like you could almost do everything that we would need and do you do wills and estates and stuff like that for investors too? Like, do you include that into your... So we, here's what we're doing. So we are slowly building our all-in sort of package, including wills and estates. That's a little bit down the road, but ultimately what we're trying to do is make life really simple for investors. So we're working on a couple of different ways to take some of the jobs away from the investor that are sort of tedious and taking them on ourselves so that we can help our clients, you know, prosper and spend less time having to do relatively menial things. Now, setting up a will is not necessarily menial. It's pretty important. And that's coming, but we're not there yet. Okay, that's good. So you're also working as our go-to for our midterm rental properties, all the legal stuff. I think a lot of midterm investors that are going that route are investors in general that will need all the services regardless. Anything specific about midterm from a legal standpoint that we should be reaching out to you for? Well, a couple of things. Number one, you, you know, I'm generally recommending people invest in a corporate structure. This is the only tried and true way to make sure that your personal assets are separate from your business assets and each business asset is separated from each other business asset. So it is a holistic conversation. I can't just sit here and say, you've got to incorporate and you've got to have a structure in place because that would be irresponsible. I know that there are costs to get that going. There are costs to maintain those annually. There are different tax considerations. So what we want to do is have a conversation with the parties that matter on making this decision. There are two others, your tax advisor and your mortgage broker. 
So generally what I want to do is I want to have a meeting with you and all of your advisors, the mortgage and the tax side. Then we can have a conversation so you fully understand as a client what you're getting into. And when we start to understand your priorities, then the three of us can sort of put together a proposal to help you meet your objectives. That's number one. Number two, understanding the Residential Tenancies Act and its application to midterm rentals. And more importantly, how to strategically sort of set yourself apart from the RTA and the Landlord-Tenant Board. And that really comes in tenant or guest due diligence. Understanding why these people or why this person wants my unit and what is their exit strategy. If they have an exit strategy, then we are a lot less concerned with the Residential Tenancies Act. Not that we're not going to follow it, but the applicability of the Residential Tenancies Act, while still there, we can be less concerned about because our tenants are or guests are going to leave and have a reason to leave as opposed to a long-term rental. So understanding that you can't escape the Residential Tenancies Act on a midterm rental, but that with good diligence, due diligence on a guest and tenant, uh, we can offset some of those concerns is of paramount importance. Yeah. And we also have like, you know, paralegals who have, I guess you guys probably work very closely with created guest terms agreements, right? And so these are not like your standard Ontario leases. These are specific and, and don't mention tenants in there or, you know, anything related that could probably be cross-referenced as as that. But, you know, I think from a case law standpoint, I think it was June 17th, there was a 10-month Airbnb guest that was deemed to be commercial and not part of the RTA. That, along with, I believe there was another case law in December of 2020 that worked in our favor for these types of things. So, you know, and just go back, like, obviously you mentioned the screening. Screening is so important. Most of them should have, you know, a, a really good reason with a start and an exit, but also ideally a primary residence that is separate. So a lot of my guests, as an example, are, you know, going through an insurance claim or renovations on their primary house, or, you know, they sold and they're moving and there's like a gap in between. Those are likely going to be, you know, in, in my, from my experience in the last few years, the majority of the tenants that are going to come through. What we screen out are tenants looking for a place to rent that were prior tenants. That's usually where people will get themselves in trouble. And so going back to your screening, just really understanding what the reason is for moving, you know, and when they're leaving and how long they're staying. We've got tenants right now, or I shouldn't say tenants, guests right now in one of our units, and they're actually in town for a film. And they're doing the makeup for all the actors and stuff like that with a start and end uh, date. So we have a lot of that. And again, every everybody's going to have, you know, different types of guests depending on where they are. But it's still going to be the majority of, you know, homeowners or somebody living somewhere else. And they have a purpose for coming and, and exiting. And then just things like not giving keys and doing keypads, you know, like all of that stuff are, are things that you need to set yourself up properly because it's still very gray right now. Right. Like it's still gray, you know. It, if if you place the wrong one in there, could you potentially end up in trouble? It's possible. Anything's possible. Even putting a one-day Airbnb guest in there, you know, if they want to play the system, it's the wrong guest. You're going to be in the same situation. Yeah, that's right. And so it's, you know, you said it. Screening is so important. 
and really understanding your business model and, and sort of putting the focus on how to find proper guests and then meeting those guests needs. That's, that's the key. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Awesome. So the next part of the podcast is lightning round. I'm going to ask you five questions that every guest gets the same ones. You're going to give me the first answer that comes to mind. You ready? Welcome to your midterm tip of the week. This week, we talk about why you should choose to stay in a midterm rental. A midterm rental is a fully furnished quality assured property that you can rent when you are in need of a place to stay and your home is not available. You could be between moves, buying or selling your house. You could be between a divorce, moving to a new country, and you need a place while you look for a longer term stay. You could be between renovations and need a home to stay while your home is being improved. In all of these cases, the midterm rental property is the right choice because we are a one-stop shop where all of your communication, your needs, and your stay will be handled by our expert team. We have a white glove service that offers additional concierge services during your stay. For more information, please contact www.midtermrentalproperties.com. All right, question number one, what's your favorite real estate investing book? Yeah, full quadrant. Okay, all right. That, that one is a good one. Everybody says rich dad, poor dad, but I think that one is almost like that next level to it. Yeah. Number two, not necessarily real estate related. I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but if you do you have a favorite one. Business School by Sharon Srivatsa. Okay, all right. Number three, what do you do for fun? Golf, I curl, I go to the dog park. I spend time with my fiance and I like to water ski. Okay. All right. Some cool things in there for sure. Number four, if you lost everything tomorrow, all your money, all your assets, how would you start again? I rely on my experience to raise private capital and get back to it. All right. And final question. If somebody has $50,000, they want to get started doing something, how would you recommend they spend that 50 grand? Mentorship. Coaching and mentorship are two different things. Mentorship is someone who's been there and can advise you. And so I would recommend mentorship. Okay. All right. Thanks for playing the lightning round. Great answers. Sean, what's the best place for my listeners to reach out and contact you? Best way. I mean, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok, you know, Prosper Us Law. Um, you can reach me by email if you want to get in touch with me directly, sean at prosperouslaw.ca. But sending me messages on socials is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for, you know, your partnership, working with us as well and, and all the work and also coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. We'll have to have you back. There's so many things we can dive into. So we'll definitely have you have you back again for a future episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.